0: Welcome, everyone. Uh, We're so glad you're here, and we're so glad um, that so many of you um, have expressed um, how how grateful you are um, for the presence of Ambassador Ross uh, tonight. Um, And so um, I'll be very quick uh, with a bio. Um, You're here because you know that this is the preeminent expert uh, uh, in this region, in these issues of uh, the relationship between the U.S. uh, and and Israel and the Middle East as well. So um, for more than 12 years, Ambassador Ross uh, played a leading role in shaping U.S. involvement in the U.S. Uh, involvement in the Middle East peace process, dealing directly with the parties as the U.S. point man on the peace process in both the George W. H.W. Bush and Bill Clinton administrations. He served two years as special assistant to uh, President Obama a National Security Council Senior Director for the Central Region, and a year as Special Advisor to Secretary of State Hillary Rodham Clinton. He has written um, five books that you should all uh, take a look at uh, if you really want to start to understand the intricacies of um, the The world as it is in the Middle East, but also some of the things that led up to that. And um, so Ambassador Ross, I I don't want to talk anymore. I really want to get to you. Our people really want to hear from you. And um, so our people are seeing a lot online that is very distressing. Um, They are seeing um, portraits in the media of Israel that um, make it um, pretty... Clear that uh, that that Israel is using um, excessive use of force, and that they started this fight, and and, and or they didn't, and that isn't accurate. And pe- people are very confused. So I'd like you, um, if you would, to just kind of lay out for us what you see as what just happened. What, what are the actual facts of the situation that happened, and then what um, what you see as what that may or may not mean about what it's used for.
1: Okay, so I want to do. Um... I want to do two things. I want to answer that question by by basically explaining the sequence of events that produce this. But then I want to I want to explain more the backdrop, and also how so much of what is appearing right now is completely divorced from reality. There is a narrative that has taken hold. I can tell you. I mean, just to give you a sense, uh, at, at the I. My base is the Washington Institute for Near East Policy, in addition to my teaching. And the person who handles media there said that I, I had 70. I did 70 different interviews in the course of a week. Uh, yeah. Many of the questions I was getting were shaped around only Israel. I would have to bring up Hamas. Uh, we had three draft Security Council resolutions that President Biden blocked because they didn't even mention Hamas. I want you to think about that. The UN Security Council is supposed to be the international institution whose sole role is to promote, protect, and preserve international norms. There is no more basic international norm than you don't shoot rockets into your neighbor. But somehow Hamas didn't find its way in. Uh, to these resolutions. They were completely unbalanced. And many of the questions I was getting, as I said, somehow implied this was all Israel's doing. So let's take a look, A, at what happened. And then I want to talk a little bit more about who Hamas is, because it's as if somehow there's there's this view, Hamas is being treated as if their black lives matter. Hamas doesn't believe in human rights, doesn't believe in civil rights, and God help you if you're gay in Gaza. So, all right. So, what? We had a perfect storm. We had a perfect storm because we had a series of, uh, we had a confluence of events that took place. First, you had Abu Mazen canceling President Mahmoud Abbas, the Palestinian Authority, canceling the elections. This was a big deal because 93% of the Palestinians who were eligible, registered to vote, meaning they wanted this. This was the first election since 2006. They wanted the election, and Hamas saw an opening was created because of the, the deep alienation that already existed, but also the reaction to the canceling of the election. Now, can, this you, also place. Ross,
0: can you just say a little bit more about what elections? I think a lot of our people do, may not know what those elections were.
1: Okay. So in, um, I'm going to give you the, the full backdrop. When the Palestinian Authority was created, Uh, As part of the interim agreement in 1995, which I helped to negotiate, a legislative council was established. And so there was an election for a legislative council in 1996. By the way, Hamas boycotted those elections because it rejected the interim agreement. It rejected the Oslo process. And there were criteria for candidates that were for for anyone who could be a candidate built into the interim agreement, at least into the annex uh, on who could. Uh, who could participate, who could be a candidate. So they boycotted those elections. Now, after Arafat died, there was not an election for the Rais, the chairman. Uh, After Arafat died, there was a presidential election in 2005 that Mahmoud Abbas won by getting 62% of the vote. Actually, you know, when you compare it to Bashar al-Assad, who was reelected yesterday with 95% of the vote, uh, that's the more typical elections in the Middle East. 62% 62% actually suggests there was there was something genuine about that election, but that was for the presidency. He never held another. He was supposed to have a five-year term. He's he's now uh, in the 16th year of a five-year term. He decided uh, in I think partly because of what I call the Biden effect, the new administration coming in. He was going to show how he was a Democrat after all. So he he was he said he was he called for elections for. The legislative council in May, and for the presidency in July. The problem was, is uh, one of the things that Abu Mazen specializes in is climbing trees, but uh, never remembering to bring a ladder with him because he trapped himself on this. Once again, just like in the first elections that were held back in 2006 for the legislative council, Fatah split into multiple different lists. Hamas has disciplined, ran one list. And the same thing was recreated again. Actually, two things were created. One, there were three different lists. Uh, one had to do with Marwan Barghouti, who's in jail but has become is more of a figure. Uh, second one is Mohammed Dahlan, who is sort of exiled by by Abu Mazen, but he has he's based in the Emirates now and he has connections in Gaza and the West Bank. Uh, and uh, and then there was a third a third set of candidates. Uh, and they were going to run against him, and they were they were much more likely to win than he was. So the combination of the split in Fatah, which would have guaranteed Hamas winning, and the likelihood that he would lose the presidential election, led him to cancel the elections and and blame it on the Israelis because he said the Israelis won't let us vote in East Jerusalem. Uh, it was just a pretext, and it was seen by everybody as a pretext. So. A cancels the elections, and that that's the backdrop to the elections. B this takes place during Ramadan. Ramadan is a period of not just increased religious contemplation and reflection, but also increased identity, national identity as well. Uh, then you have Sheikh Jarrah. Now Sheikh Jarrah is also is taking place uh, during Ramadan, and what Sheikh Jarrah represents is several. Palestinian families uh, who uh, moved into East Jerusalem by were moved into East Jerusalem as refugees by the Jordanians after the 1948 war, when the Arab Legion took over East Jerusalem and the Jews in East Jerusalem left. Uh, These were houses that were there; they were moved into these houses, so they don't hold the title to these houses. Uh, Later on, a Jewish trust had the title, and then an active settler movement bought the title from them, and they wanted to move in and move these people out. Now, Sheikh Jarrah is an Arab neighborhood very close, it's an inner neighborhood close to the old city, but outside the walls. Uh, so here was taking place in Ramadan, this became a cause First, because when it comes to Jerusalem, there are two things that set in motion a train of events that are very hard to control. Uh, One is anything that has to do with Halcyon presence and moving it out, evicting it. Two is anything that looks like it's transgressing the holy sites. The Aska Mosque is the third holiest site in Islam. And what we had was a combination of what a legal process that was going to lead to the eviction, of these families that have lived there since 1948, that was also seized upon not only by, by, by Palestinians, but also by the Israeli right, including Ben-Gavir, this uh, former Kahanez. Uh, I can tell you a lot more about Ben-Gavir if you want, but this is one of the people that Prime Minister Netanyahu helped to ensure they would be their votes wouldn't be lost to the right. And he goes and he sets up his office Outside of these in Shakerar, outside of where these buildings are, so he obviously is. He wants to make it a cause uh, and then you have Jerusalem Day, which commemorates the uh, the victory in 1967 and the reunification of Jerusalem. So thousands of Israelis go, you know, follow the parade, but they also go to the kotel, and this is taking place during the. In the last days of Ramadan, which is actually the most fervent, from a religious standpoint, time of Ramadan, Uh, and on the platform, I mean, you you know, you have a plateau, and then you have the Kotel on the other side, Uh, there were rocks being thrown over the side. Now, this is serious, because first there are thousands of Israelis there, stones are being thrown over the side, you get hit in the head by a stone you know, from three hundred feet above you, it's gonna kill you. Or it certainly can. So the Israeli police had to stop that. But what they did, which made no sense, was they, they went into the Oscar Mosque. Now I can tell you, having spent plenty of time up there, what I described as throwing rocks near the the edge, uh throwing it over the side, that's very dangerous and it had to stop. But the Oscar Mosque, you know, is more than 500 feet away from there. George Washington couldn't have thrown stone from the Alaska Mosque into the Kotel. You wanted to stop the people throwing rocks, stop the people throwing rocks. Going into the Kotel made absolutely no sense whatsoever. Everybody who's there is a reporter because they all have a phone, they all videoed it. This immediately went viral and it was portrayed, it looked like an assault on the Alaska Mosque. This, you know, this just set everything on fire. Uh, now what it did for Hamas is it gave them an additional pretext. Mohammed Daif, who was one of the, he was leader of the Izzadim al-Qassam brigades, the military wing, uh, of Hamas. You know, one of the, you know, the Israelis have tried to, to kill him multiple times because he's responsible for more bombings than anybody else, uh, in Israel. He, he, you know, he's never seen. He came out and said, You know, we, unless the Israelis stop what they're doing in Jerusalem, we will make them pay a price. Uh, And they launched seven rockets at Jerusalem. Now, let me put this in some perspective for you. A, there's 368,000 Palestinians who live in East Jerusalem. So if you're firing rockets at Jerusalem, if you're going to hit, the chances of killing a Palestinian there are not small. But that didn't matter to Hamas. Hamas also knew Once they fired rockets at at Jerusalem, Israel was going to respond in a very tough fashion. They didn't care about that either. They knew Gazans would pay the price for it. They didn't care about that either. Why? Because they saw this as an opportunity to present themselves as a protector of Jerusalem, to seize the mantle of who was imposing a price on the Palestinians as a way of showing their contrast with Abu Mazen and the Palestinian Authority, and and to catapult them into a position where they can try to take over the Palestinian national movement, which is their long-term aim. So they did this knowing full well what the consequences would be. Now, I want to put this in some perspective. They fired 4,350 rockets, projectiles into Israel in 10 days. Okay, so this was averaging over 400 a day. In 2014... They fired 4,500 in 51 days. In 2014, they began that conflict with 10,000 rockets. They fired 4,500. Israel destroyed 2,200. They had 3,300 left, 3,300 left after 2014. In 2021, at the beginning of this, they had 30,000 rockets. They built up dramatically during that time. Uh, but they didn't just build up their rockets dramatically. By the way, the rockets are, that they have now have greater range, much greater payload, meaning much greater explosive power. In addition to the rockets and building rocket assembly, a rocket assembly uh, plant and different fabrication areas, uh, they also, they built, this massive tunnel complex. Now I wanna put this in perspective. Gaza, even before this conflict and after 2014, was largely destitute, 50% unemployment, 80% of the Gazans live on assistance from the UN, 80%. They were in desperate need of investment and of construction. And what does Hamas do? Israel in this in this conflict destroyed 60 miles of underground tunnel. Now, today, Yahya Sinwar, who is the leader of, of Hamas in Gaza, claimed that they only destroyed 10% of all the tunnels. It's probably hyperbole. I don't think they have 600 miles of tunnels. But let's say, even the Israelis would say, they probably destroyed uh, less than half. Now, I want you to think about that. To build all these tunnels requires a huge, a huge amount of cement. It requires an enormous amount of electrical wiring. It requires an awful lot of steel. And it requires a lot of wood because they create wood planks to fortify uh, the tunnels I've been in. You know, the, the Israelis in 2014 destroyed 32 tunnels, 14 of which penetrated Israel. So they they preserved a couple. And so I've been in them. I know exactly what, what went into these. Now think about it. Here's a place that's in desperate need of construction. It's in desperate need of investment. It's in desperate need of employment. And what does Hamas do? It, in, it uses its fighters to build these tunnels. It absorbs all this material, proving they don't care one whit about the well-being of Palestinians, they care about being in a position to fight Israel. And the critical point here to bear in mind is uh, if, in fact, there is a major reconstruction effort, it is a given unless there is a transparent means that oversees what's coming in, that can track everything that goes to the warehouses that can track everything that goes from the warehouses to the construction site. They will again, divert all these materials. They will do exactly what they've done before. So, you know, I want to, I want to lay out three tracks for you of what I think can be done from here. But before I do that, I want to do one other thing. I want to explain again, <laughs> who Hamas is, but also a little bit about Gaza. This notion that somehow Israel is responsible ignores the reality that Israel withdrew from Gaza 100%. They, They dismantled all the settlements and they withdrew all the soldiers in September of 2005. Now you'll hear when you talk about, okay, you'll hear the counter argument, but Israel really still controls everything because they put a quarantine on. They did not put that quarantine on until 2007. They withdrew in 2005, 100%. I gave a, I went into Gaza and I gave a speech to a couple hundred Palestinians unbeknownst to me at the time uh, the whole leader I mean I saw him when I when I got there the whole leadership of Hamas the whole the, the basically the top 10 leaders of Hamas were there uh, and as I turned to my host when I recognized Mahmoud Zahar one of the founders of Hamas and before I could say anything you realize I, I recognized him He said, we thought it was a good idea for the opposition to hear you. Now, in that, this was after Sharon had announced Israel was going to get out, but before Israel had gotten out. And I said, Palestinians historically have never controlled their own destiny and been able to make their own decisions about what their future would hold. In '48, the Arabs said, we'll take care of it. Uh, Arafat told me when we were at Camp David that he wanted to go to the original Camp David, but the Soviets and the Syrians wouldn't let him. I actually made the case to him when we were at Camp David, okay, you told me in the past you you didn't have the ability to make decisions for Palestine's future. Now you do. And he didn't. And I said, here Israel's getting out. Now when they get out, you have this opportunity. You can shape what happens here. You turn Gaza into a going concern. You show that Gaza can be developed and can flourish. And it won't just be the international community that says, gee, if that works in Gaza, why not the West Bank? It'll be the Israeli public. But if you turn Gaza into a platform for attacks against Israel, then who's going to say, gee, let's take that model and apply it to the West Bank? What did Hamas do after Israel withdrew? During the process of withdrawal, they carry out an act of terror. Why? Because they wanted to make it appear that they drove the Israelis out. Now, in the first six months after Israel got out, there were six crossing points that Israel created. Uh, The crossing points carried everything into Gaza. Gaza didn't have a port. So, you know, Egypt basically kept its border closed with Gaza. So the only open border that Gaza had was Israel. There were six crossing points to handle people, to handle all the material coming in, sort of imports and exports to handle uh, Palestinians who worked in Israel, to handle those who needed to go to Israel for medical treatment. Six crossing points. As soon as Israel withdrew over the first six months, Hamas carried out attacks against the crossing points. The crossing points weren't a favor that Israel was doing. It wasn't a favor to Israel to have the crossing points. This was something that was necessary for the lifeblood of Gaza. But this is what Hamas did. So Israel gets out of Gaza. You want, for those who say they want Israel to withdraw, they've withdrawn unilaterally twice, from Lebanon and from Gaza. Now, normally, the concept of withdrawal is supposed to be land for peace, or at least land for security. What did Israel get? It got land for tunnels and rockets. So the idea of who's at fault here without, as I said, I think the Israeli moves in Jerusalem, you know, I wrote this article in the LA Times where he said, Israel was probably technically right, but it's not enough to be right. You have to be wise. They were not wise in Jerusalem. Their overall settlement policy is not wise. But that doesn't justify when Israel takes steps like it did and it withdraws, that it gets, it gets land for rockets. The reason the peace camp has been killed in Israel was partly the second intifada, which followed the most forthcoming government in Israel's history, being prepared to accept the Clinton parameters. And the Palestinians not only said no, but they launched a violent intifada with bombs in Israel that killed 1,100 Israelis. Palestinians paid a price four times that much, but that's that. Plus the unilateral withdrawals killed the Israeli peace camp. And so what Hamas now wants to do is ensure that that there's no possibility the peace can't come come back. Uh, you know, this is the context in which we need to be thinking about how we talk about this issue and also how we educate those uh, who somehow want to think that somehow Hamas is a victim here. Hamas is a victimizer. It's not a victim.
0: And, and that that leads to kind of the the next question I think so many of us and our you know congregants are holding, which is you know this this. Using what's happened as an excuse, um, the amazing amount of anti-Semitic rhetoric that our young people and we, but especially our young people, are are confronting, and and how how to respond to that, how to answer, um, when in in the media, you know, there isn't so much of what you just explained portrayed at all. It's it's that Israel is the perpetrator of you know an overuse of force, and then anti-Semitism, you know, that's Wanting or needing to be expressed, you know, gets uh, conflated with uh, anti-Zionist, anti-Israel policy.
1: Well, I think, look, one one way to deal with this, and first of all, is to is to call it out for what it is. Uh, when Israel is held to a standard that nobody else is held to, then it's pretty clear the that this is driven by anti-Semitism. You know, it's true. Not everybody who criticizes Israel is an anti-Semite. Not all criticism of Israel is unjustified. But what is true is, when the only one you hold to a certain standard is Israel, then there's a there's another reason you're doing it. Uh, and you know, the the anti-Zionism. Uh, Anti-Zionism basically says the Jews. As a people, do not have a right to self-determination. That's what it says. It says that the Jews, as a people, uh, having a state is illegitimate. That's what it says. Uh, and and that means that if you support Israel, you're illegitimate. That's anti-Semitism. That's not anti-Zionism. That's anti-Semitism. Uh, you can raise questions about Israel. You can you can criticize Israel, but the idea that Jews don't have a right to a state, which they've built, uh, is clearly driven by a different motivation. Uh, But it's also driven, in a sense, by a complete lack of awareness. You know, I, I hear some of these people who will come out and say, there should just be one state with everybody with equal rights. Really. In the Middle East, wherever there is a state that has more than one national identity, sectarian identity, or tribal identity... You have a state that is at war with itself. If you want to, if you want to have an enduring conflict, then have one state. You have two national movements with two national identities. You know, in the Middle East, that's the prescription for ongoing conflict or paralysis. Uh, two states for two peoples reflects the reality of two national identities and two national movements. So, I think the you know the way to to address this in part is to fall back on the fact that the Jewish people have a right to self-determination. That's what Israel represents. That's what Zionism is. Now, look, part of the challenge has been that you've had a right-wing government in Israel that uh, that has adopted a policy that, in, in first and in principle, is against two states, which means there can only be one state. It'll be a binational state. The problem is the Israeli right favors one state, and the and the left favors one state, but they mean something completely different by it. Although the implications would be, you know, it's Ahmed Tibi once said, look, I favor this is an Israeli Arab politician. Um, he said I favor two states, but if you know, if in the end they don't want it, and we have just one state, that's fine. We'll have one state, but but of course. There'll be no right of return. I mean, there'll be Jews won't have an automatic right to 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 immigrate here to do to make aliyah. Uh, you know, uh, we'll have a different anthem. I mean, basically, the definition of one state is very different depending upon who offers it. Uh, and here again, that's why I say part of our problem is also. You know, the the polarization here uh, and the partisanship on this issue, Israel was always a nonpartisan issue. You know, Israel wasn't a Republican interest or a Democratic interest. It was an American interest. Uh, And, you know, I think one of the mistakes that the Israeli government made, that the prime minister made, was embracing Trump too closely because that created certainly in the Jewish community, but definitely in the Democratic Party, that created... A kind of syllogism, you know that Trump is bad, Trump's like Israel, therefore Israel's is bad. Uh, so we're contending with that as well. But I think you know the the answer to your question is to is just to say, look, if if the only one you apply these standards to is Israel, then you obviously have a different motivation. And just not to put too fine a point on it, we have six hundred thousand dead in Syria. We have 11 million people displaced in Syria. Uh, You know, the Syrians, by the way, uh, the Ein-Hilwa is a a Palestinian refugee camp uh, on the outskirts of Damascus. I mean, within actually, yeah, no, actually it is on the outskirts of Damascus. Uh, And, um, you know, a lot of Palestinians were killed there as part of the war. I don't understand why... You know, other victims don't count.
2: I I so appreciate that answer. And I just want to kind of uh, kind of take one piece, you know, that there's so much information there and so much of an ability to to explain it straightforward. But one of the things I think a lot of people here are concerned with and wrestling with is, how specifically are we supposed to talk about that with our kids Arm, you know, give our kids the right information or at least the right things to say to uh, take down the tension in the room when something comes up or when they read certain things on social media. So much of this is a new level of tension that they just haven't experienced. So as a father and a grandfather, what would you say to your family about that? Like how would you talk to them about the way they in, interact with, the
1: world and with social media in this circumstance. Look, it's, it's, it's obviously very hard when there's so many untruths that are spread on social media. You know, when you, when there is this, what is rampant on social media right now is that there was a state of Palestine and Israel conquered it. I mean, it's, when you're dealing with, you know, when you deal with, With no truth is what we discovered the last four years in our country, where there was an effort to basically make to say there are no facts, that there's an alternative reality. Now, you know that's not the province, as it turns out, only of the right. It's also the province of the left. So I think, you know, one of the things I think with when I talk, you know, when my kids are older, but I do have grandkids. But they're really young, so it's too soon to have this conversation with them yet. But if I were having that conversation, my conversation would be one in which I say, look, we, the way you fight the unreality is by constantly repeating the facts. And just saying, look, this is, this, is, this is what actually happened. That's why I say, I think it's very important to remind people, Israel withdrew from Gaza. You want them to withdraw, they shouldn't get rockets after they withdraw. I think that that's pretty simple and straightforward. I think the message right now uh, should be focused on Hamas basically launched rockets. Hamas basically built up dramatically. Hamas diverts all the material that comes in, unless it can really be policed. They'll do it all over again. If you want reconstruction in Gaza, no one is going to invest heavily in it knowing that Hamas, at a time of its choosing, will do the same thing all over again, not just rebuild, but they'll they'll launch rockets when it suits their political purpose. They don't care what the price for Palestinians is. So I would just, I mean, that's pretty straightforward. But I'd also make this point. Israel has withdrawn twice, unilaterally. When it withdrew from Sinai, that's different because it was part of a peace treaty. They withdrew unilaterally twice. And what they got each time was rockets and tunnels. Uh, You know, this is about rejection of Israel being there. Uh, And, you know, who knows? So I guess I'll make one other point. I hear this all the time. Look at the difference in numbers of deaths between the number of Israelis and the number of Palestinians. And it's not just Iron Dome. It's that Israel actually believes in protecting its people. So there's civil defense system. Every building has a bomb shelter. Every apartment building on each floor has a safe room. Uh, you know, Israelis know when they hear the siren to go do it. I, you know, I have three little grandsons there. They live in Ramataviv. And they, this, this experience, what do they have to do during the night? Because he's, you know, one, the, the sirens went off in Tel Aviv uh, at midnight and one in the morning. So, you know, I have pictures of them out in the hallway where there's no windows. Uh, and the five year old asks, you know, why do they want to kill us?
0: And what do you say to the five-year-old?
1: I don't find it easy to talk to to him. Uh, You know, it breaks my heart. Yeah. You know, for
2: many of our congregants who care deeply about the Middle East, but may not have family, deep, deep friendships of people who live there, a big piece of what made this moment different because for those of us who have family and friends there, th- these moments have been scary. It was scary in 2015. It was, you know, the, the, the major uptick of antisemitism around the world with that has also really drawn in a different level of fear for people here as well.
1: Um, and,
0: uh, and the reality of attacks here, even in West
1: LA, I mean, it's, you know, it's, no, I, I know. Look, I think, um, you know, one of the you, – you certainly don't legitimize a cause by basing it on hatred and anti-Semitism. So these pro-Palestinian demonstrators are not exactly lending credence to the cause. And, you know, I think that also has to be part of the answer. Uh, is this what being pro-Palestinian is about, that you hate Jews? Is this what being pro-Palestinian is about, that you, that, you know, you, you reject humanistic values? Uh, what I do say, I mean, what I do say to kids about, you know, what's going on uh, is that, you know, there, there are those whose purpose is not peace, not coexistence. Not mutual tolerance. Uh, And they must, you know, they must be defeated. They can't define the future. We have to define the future.
0: And yet so many people seem to buy be buying into this you know idea and 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 the and the anti-semitism and and i i understand what you're saying it's like rational to say is this is this what defines your movement and yet so many of our young people um like are seeing that that their friends buy it hook line and sinker and don't call themselves anti-semites they say what the jews are doing you know is is horrific and you know, and then the other, the, the other part of that, um, that what the, what the Jews are doing, not, not Israelis, not a certain Israeli policy, not anything, what the Jews are doing, right? Um, and they buy that. Um, and the other part of that is that we, we really are struggling, um, to articulate, um, how we can be in our own, so comfortable in certain parts of our political identities as Americans w- within a movement that is, also buying into a lot of that so what would you know what do we do our, so our young people are watching their peers buy into it and we so, some of us you know who who lean to the left are, are also really struggling um with what does it mean to have, have been comfortable in a certain part of the politics of america and that cause uh, and those values and then see you know that, that all of but but when it comes to this it is completely uncomfortable for us obviously
1: well look I mean, we don't have a magic solution here. Uh, this is going to be a struggle because, you know, there's no question that in the progressive side of the, of the Democratic Party, there is a narrative that has taken hold that Israel is a victimizer and the Palestinians are the victim. Uh, and they seem to be very little concerned about any other victims anywhere else. Uh, they have, you know, they've created this intersectionality, They're treating Palestinians as if they're, you know, we're in a world of the oppressors and the oppressed, uh, and they are portraying Israel as the oppressor. Uh, And the the answer to this, I think, is uh, in part just to be, to continue just to repeat what the realities are. Uh, Don't grow tired of saying that. Uh, You know, as I said, remind people Israel withdrew from Lebanon, Israel withdrew from Gaza. And they didn't get peace and security. They got rockets and tunnels. So, you know, there was a peace camp in Israel, but basically groups like Hezbollah and Hamas killed it. Uh, Israel built a security barrier. Why? Because of suicide bombs in Israel. Uh, Israel was prepared to accept peace proposals, uh, but they, you know, they were the only ones who were prepared to accept peace proposals. Does Israel make mistakes? Yes. Uh, I think the key is, you know, we can't say this is a morality play where one side is all right and the other is all wrong. That's not true. But we can say groups like Hezbollah are all wrong because they don't even offer anything to their own people. They expose their own people. They impose a price on their own people. You know, I've I've written something where in it I I said that Hamas excels at getting Palestinians killed, but they don't excel at advancing the Palestinian cause. Uh, So, I mean, you know, there has to be a readiness to sort of fight back on on the substance. You can't we just we can't concede the point. Uh, And we have to challenge them on their facts. You know. You know, there's so I have
2: so many questions that I want to ask, and you have such a, a way of explaining these uh, different aspects of the situation that is really quite helpful. So I'm going to ask kind of uh, two different parts of the question, and and you choose which one you want to go with. I I totally understand. I just want to make sure we have a chance to kind of hear different points. The one is that the Secretary of State went and met with both Abbas and Netanyahu, uh, signaled that there would be a new. Policy, a new way that America will be dealing with the the Middle East in the situation, and yeah. signaled also to this notion of potentially returning to the iran deal and, and so i seri- 'm i'm curious is this is a good idea. what will the consequences be of that situation uh, where it stands um, and the second half of the question, and we can table it if not, is you spoke now to this notion of no like perfect side no one 's without without mistake here, and the one piece we didn 't hear so much about. In the, your opening was what was going on in the Israeli government formation side, and and I'm and there's some curiosity here if part of the provocation that was taking place was was within the Israeli government trying to stop the formation and mandate of a government. So, so
1: let me all right. There's a lot there, so let me let me approach it in pieces. Okay, so let me take the last part first. Um, I don't believe that, uh, look, obviously, Prime Minister Netanyahu benefited from the conflict in the sense that right before the conflict began, it looked as if we were within two days of a new government, an alternative government being formed. Uh, and obviously, the conflict put it on hold. Then Bennett said that he, the there was not a change coalition that he could be a part of. It's not entirely clear that it's that is absolutely finished i mean lapide has until next tuesday uh his mandate lasts until then uh, and he's putting together agreements with a variety of parties and he's trying to create a reality where he can go to bennett and basically say okay we can avoid a fifth election if you now join uh will that work i don't know uh but it, it is true that Bibi prefers a fifth election now. He can't put together a government. Um, and um, hang on for a second. I was I was doing that without my with just my battery, and it was about to run out. Um, so I think that he, look, he clearly understood the, the, um, the political benefits, but I don't think it's what drove this. Once they fired rockets on Jerusalem, I don't care who was prime minister, you had to respond. Because if you don't respond, then you have Hamas' position feeling, ah oh, we can do much more of this. So they had, a price had to be imposed, and anybody left to right, who headed a government would have responded and it would have responded in a tough fashion. The question of how the police behaved, who was giving instructions for this, uh, you know, that might be something different, but here again, I don't think that came from the Prime Minister per se. It might have come from the Interior Minister and it might have been in the context of trying to put together a right-wing government that, you know, that the instructions were be, be tough here. This is Jerusalem. Uh, but again, you can't. You know, Hamas took advantage of what they saw as an opportunity, which had been created in part by uh, Abu Mazen's cancellation of the election. So um, that's that side of your the, the question you're raising. I think on the um, on the way forward, uh, I was telling you before we came on that there there are. I have ideas about what can be done. There are really three different tracks. Track number one is offering the U.S. needs to mobilize the international community to create a very credible, large-scale, massive reconstruction for Gaza that is conditioned on no rearmament of Hamas that is also verifiable. It means there has to be a way to... I said it before, there has to be a way to create crossing points. I'd like to see Egypt. Egypt has a – Egypt in, in Rafa, Egypt has a crossing point where they allow only people but not goods. There should be – they should have a crossing point as well. There should be inspection of everything. Then there should be GPS tracking devices on the trucks that takes the materials to warehouses and the wareh- from the same 24-7 cameras in the warehouses – Uh, to be able to monitor that. There should be people on the ground there. They can be Egyptians. They can be some other internationals. We can also set up, you know, monitoring stations with consoles uh, looking at the cameras outside of Gaza. But that, you have to frame this issue. It's not just the practicality of preventing Hamas. It also gets back to what what I'm saying to you is there has to be a constant public framing of the issue. Hamas has a choice of allowing Gaza to develop or having its rockets, but it can't have both. And Hamas's own instincts will be choose the rockets over its public. You know, the more this is the way the issue is framed, the more Hamas is put on the defensive. And it reminds everybody of who the, who the, real, who the real problem is. So anyway, track number one is reconstruction, but in a way that Hamas can't benefit from it. And that means, in practical terms, a mechanism for controlling what comes in and and overseeing end use, track one. Track two, there needs to be, the the Palestinian Authority, the West Bank, needs to be bolstered. They're secular. They're not Islamist the way Hamas is. And they, at least in principle, accept the idea of two states in a way that Hamas does not. Now, for them to be bolstered, however, you also have to take account of the reality that in the case of Palestinian Authority, the level of corruption there is what has produced great alienation among the the people of the West Bank. Uh, The irony is, if if you had free and fair elections in the West Bank and Gaza, in the West Bank, Hamas would probably win. In Gaza, Fatah would win. The public rejects the, the authority because of how they operate. So, track two is bolstering the PA, but in a sense, as part of the international effort to mobilize resources for reconstruction in Gaza, there should be resources mobilized for investment in the West Bank. But that just like Gaza should be conditioned on oversight in the case of the West Bank, it should be conditioned on reforms on on rooting out corruption on developing institutions, on having a rule of law, you know, the PA can become successful. If it does that, Uh, and that should be that we should not be providing assistance that is not conditioned, at least on that. And the third track uh, means that you have to do something to break the stalemate between Israelis and Palestinians. And that's what we have. We have a stalemate because of complete disbelief on the two sides. You know, the Biden administration is absolutely right. You can't launch a big initiative to produce two states right now. The first of all, the Palestinians are divided. Secondly, the politics among Palestinians uh, makes it impossible to make any concessions. But we have the politics in Israel that make it impossible, too, right now. So the point is, how do you break the stalemate between the two? You take advantage of what is the one new element in the region. And that one new element is the normalization process, which obviously in the last two weeks, you didn't see any of the states that made peace with Israel walk away from it. They didn't bring their, they didn't call their ambassadors out. They condemned the Israelis for what they were doing in Jerusalem. Their attitudes and what they said about Gaza was, was uh, in the case of the UAE, they called for you know reducing the, the level of suffering to both sides. It was actually a very balanced, responsible statement. Uh, others were just more more willing to criticize the Israelis, but still the point is nobody walked away. Now, the issue here, there was a model that was created by the UAE. The UAE is the one that took the initiative and came to the Trump administration and said, look, we'll do full normalization for no annexation and weapon systems to us, that you've denied us because we weren't at peace with Israel. That can provide an interesting kind of model. You know, we could be going to the Saudis and understand the UAE didn't suddenly just fully normalize. Their normalization process took over a decade. What happened in July of 2020, they came in and said, you know what, we're ready to go the rest of the way. But they were going to have Israelis, before COVID, Israelis were going to be allowed to have their own pavilion in the 2020 Expo uh, in Dubai. Uh, And they were going to be allowed to travel there on their own passport. This was before the formal peace. So they were in a process of normalizing. You could have the Saudis, we could broker a, a move by the Saudis where the Saudis would be willing to create a, a commercial trade office in Tel Aviv, and they would ask for something from the Israelis are the Palestinians. It would have to be politically significant because they're making a politically significant move. The, the example I give is that Israel would stop building to the east of the security barrier. The security barrier is on the 8% of the territory that is closest to the Green Line, which, by the way, of all Israelis who live beyond the green line live within that area. Only 15% live on the 92% of the West Bank, the rest of the 92%. If you're not building in that 92%, you're preserving the possibility of a two-state outcome. It doesn't guarantee it, but it preserves it as an option. So, you know, the Saudis could point to something they were doing. It could be sold in Israel, even though the settlers will be against it. The settlers were against the normalization with with the UAE, but 80% of the Israeli public supported normalization as opposed to the annexation. Now you know, 80% of the Israeli public don't agree on anything, but they agreed on this. Now that means if you if you went ahead and you had and you you have this big step by the Saudis, not full normalization, but a big step, you could rationalize, okay. You're still going to build in what I call the blocks, but in this area, because no one has a definite, an agreed definition of the blocks, so that's why I referred to the security barrier, which, by the way, this was the original idea of the security barrier was Rabin's, because he said he actually raised it with me in February of 1995, and he said, "I don't know if we, can, if we can negotiate a full peace agreement with the Palestinians, but I do know we have to have a partition of the land. but we're going to build this." Because this is the way we remain a Jewish democratic state. Uh, So Israel gets a a significant move by the Saudis. Uh, The Saudis would get the ability to say, we've done something that preserves two states, and in a sense, stop the building in in what would be a Palestinian state. That's the point of no longer building in the 92% of the West Bank. When you keep building there, you're building in what would be a Palestinian state. So and it would require the Saudis will want assurances from us for sure about the relationship with them. But that's the sort of thing that could be brokered. And it's by doing what I just described, you can break the stalemate because also all this should be done quietly where we work with the Saudis, we work with the Israelis, we produce what can be these parallel moves. And before we do anything, we go to the Palestinian Authority and say, okay, you don't just get to be on the receiving end. You have to take steps, too. One step they could take would be to acknowledge the historic Jewish connection to the land, something they've not done. That would have a big psychological effect within Israel. Again, you want to break the stalemate between Israelis and Palestinians. And if there's anything we learned about the last two weeks, it's that you can't pretend the Palestinian problem will go away by itself. And you also can't pretend that if you don't deal with it, it has no implications for what happens within Israel. That we also saw.
0: Uh, Ambassador Ross, you've been so gracious with your time and we know it's super late for you and you're traveling to Israel. And um, so I I would just ask, is there is there just something you can say to all of us who who, you know, share this concern and love for Israel, wants peace for the region, are really nervous and um, concerned about, you know, the rise of anti-Semitism, the 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 violence on the streets of, of Israel, which is, you know, has not been the case like this in so, so long. Um, just closing, anything in closing you can say to all of us who are with you, but um, need your aid side, need your counsel?
1: Well, look, I mean, uh, I would say the following. Um, you know, there is, before what happened, before this intercommunal stress, we were seeing what was for the first time serious bridge building politically between Israeli Arabs uh, uh, and and Israeli Jews. Now, part of it was established because of COVID, because um, just under 20% of all the Israeli doctors are Arab, just under 30% of all the Israeli nurses are Arab, just under 50% of all the pharmacists are Arab, uh, and they were all on the front lines of battling covid uh, and it changed the image of Israeli Arabs among most Israeli Jews, number one. Number two, polling in the last few years among Israeli Arabs made it very clear around 70 percent define themselves not only as Israelis, but happy to be Israelis, 70 percent. Uh, and and what you saw with Mansour Abbas was, and what you saw from the public, was a desire to be integrated into Israel, they wanted investment in infrastructure because the investment in the Arab towns and villages is dramatically less than in the in the rest of Israel. You know, they wanted law and order. The murder rate in the Arab areas is like close to ten times what it is. And you know, I, I would read these articles in the Israeli press by Israeli Arabs saying, if if Israeli Jews were being killed this way, you know for sure, the the police would be dealing with this. Uh, so there, and and you even have Bibi, the, the guy who says in, in 2015 they're going in droves to vote, and then he wants to put cameras uh, to, to intimidate them voting in the next election. Then you have Bibi, who's the one who then reaches out to Mansour Abbas, who heads the Islamic movement uh, in Israel. So I do believe that if there's a, a serious effort to reach out to all the, the mayors of, Israeli, of of the Arab towns and villages to begin a serious dialogue between the government and them about what they need to make it clear that, you know, the, this is, um, to fundamentally make it clear that we all they all have a stake together uh, and are going to address it. I'm hopeful that this might have been a wake-up call. Uh, you know, look, for some, it won't be, but for, I think, there's so many Israelis I know who were just shocked by this. And they said to me, we can handle Hamas. This is a much more existential threat to us.
0: Well, again, thank you so much for your time. Um, and uh, and travel safely, Nusia Uh And we should all uh, watch this again, because there's a lot to take in. Um, and please go... Uh, do whatever is going to be good for you uh, for the rest of your nights. Um, and Thank you again for, for sharing your wisdom and your experience and your insight. Um, it, it's incredibly valuable for us and, and to share that, you know, with others is, is, so important right now where people don't know where to turn, they don't know where to get good information, they don't know how to begin unpacking this. So thank you for your help in that and we wish you continued strength uh, in, in sharing your wisdom and your influence uh, and I've read that you were criticized on both sides every time you were involved in uh, in peace negotiations or any kind of negotiations in the Middle East it's like, which makes you a true diplomat <laughs> that you are being criticized by both sides. So I, I wish you continued strength in for that path of, um, of criticism on all sides, which means you're doing the right thing.
2: <laughs> and, to our, and to our KI community, uh, I know that there was many questions that came in. Rabbi Bernstein and I would love to continue those conversations. Send us those questions. As, she, as, uh, as Rabbi Bernstein said, re-listen to this again, because a lot of information was given and we can start to unpack it all. This is not the end of our processing and engaging in our homeland and in the situation in Israel, it is just the beginning of it. And so we will continue to do so and work. And uh, uh, Ambassador Ross, we look forward to more opportunities to engage with you. And so everyone, thank you and good night.